You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Today's reading comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and can be found in your pew Bibles on page 774. And if you do not have a Bible today, please feel free to take one of these pew Bibles as a gift from Redeemer. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Gospel reading this morning is Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. You can find it on page 814 in your pew Bible. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once again, good morning, church. Hey, good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. 
which contrary to popular belief is actually not a season of gloominess and songs in minor key and giving up chocolate, uh, all of which sound terrible, uh, but rather a season based upon the 40 days that Jesus fasted in the wilderness in preparation for his earthly ministry. These 40 days therefore become for us in the season of Lent, this time of preparation for our mission. It was a time of preparation for Christ's mission. It's a time of preparation for our mission as well. We are a church committed to practicing gospel formation for missional presence. That's our reason for existing as a church. And I know that we all walked into this side entrance today, not the main entrance, so I'm going to point over here instead of over there. But um, on your way out this morning through the side, if you want to pick up one of these vision cards, um, it has on one side printed gospel formation for missional presence and then through the seven practices of the ancient church. Practices of story, identity, belonging, context, or virtue, context, vocation, and imagination. And on the other side, it actually gives you a pretty clear, simple, and straightforward way to move from a new person who is just getting to know Redeemer to actually someone who's on the inside, an insider, a member here. And so pick one of these up uh, on your way out if you can and learn more about what it means for us to practice gospel formation in order that we be a missional presence here in the city of Richmond in our place and in our time. Now, to help us along the way, we are practicing Lent. Lent is part of the tradition of the ancient church. Not everybody in the room is familiar with that. I get it. I didn't grow up with Lent. I imagine some of you did not grow up with this either. We're kind of getting to know what it means to be a church that practices Lent. And to help us with this, we are going to pursue during this season a sermon series on the book of Jonah. And I hope, this lean, hope, I hope it helps us lean deeper into the practices of Lent. Uh, Because Jonah, the story of Jonah, contrary to popular belief, similar to Lent, is deeply misunderstood. It's not primarily about a man who is getting, you know, who gets eaten by a whale. The big fish in the story of Jonah, did you know, is only actually mentioned in three verses and has no speaking lines, which I imagine is probably deeply disappointing for the whale. Uh, But rather, the story of Jonah is actually the story of God's mercy. Did you know that? God's mercy on people that are living far from him, God's mercy on Jonah himself, God's mercy on you and your neighbors. It's a book about mercy. That's what it is. And so we're calling this series Jonah and the Mercy of God. And um, to tell you, I know I'm asking you to get a lot of stuff, but this is our small group guidebook. It not only gives you practices of Lent, but also will help you walk through this series with your small group. There's discussion questions in here and some more information. Please pick up one of those as well on your way out through those doors. Okay, so you got two pieces of homework so far. Maybe a few more as the sermon goes on. All right, as we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father. I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one of the first games that most children learn how to play with their parents is hide and go seek, right? It's an absolute delight to watch kids play this together. Very young children love to play this because children, as uh, all human beings do, have this within them, this kind of dissonance where they want to hide, but they also want to be what? Found, right? Kids want to hide. Kids also want to be found. This past weekend, our family was celebrating my dad's 70th birthday, which was a lot of fun. It was kind of like a big family reunion. All of my siblings and their spouses and kids were all packed into one house together. I don't actually know how many kids and cousins were in there, but it felt and sounded like 100 uh, throughout most of the weekend. And at one point, yesterday was a little bit rainy and cold, and so we were inside, couldn't go out, and we played hide-and-go-seek. Now, playing hide-and-go-seek with a bunch of little cousins is a lot of fun because all you have to do to start the game is just lean in and say, I'm going to find you. 
and they, it triggers, like they immediately know what's going on, and they all scatter like roaches when you turn the lights on, and they all go and they hide, and if you go into a room where there is a little kid hiding, what do you have to do to find them? All you have to do is walk into the room and say, I wonder where they are, and then what do you hear? You hear giggling from under the bed or in the closet or something, because kids love to then spring out and say, here I am, right? Because we love to be, love to hide, love to run away, but also love to be found, And that dissonance that little kids have within them in that kind of hysterical way, it actually doesn't disappear as we get older. It just becomes a little darker. It becomes a little more complex. The ways in which we hide become more devious, and our desire to be found actually becomes more desperate because all human beings have within themselves this conflicting instinct to hide and the instinct to be found. And Scripture, the story of the Bible, actually explains that dissonance to us. The story of the Bible is, in one sense, a story of people that hide. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, these first human beings, they rebel against God, they experience sin, they're separated from God. And what do they do? They immediately hide, they flee from the presence of God. And all through the story of the Bible, we see these characters who are running from God. Elijah, this prophet, flees and hides. The disciples leave Jesus and run away. Even Peter denies knowing Jesus. He's fleeing from, from his identity in Jesus. But scripture tells the story not only of people that run away from God and that hide from God, but also of a God who chases, a God who pursues. What does God do with Adam and Eve when they hide from him? Does he just like shrug his shoulders and walk away? No. He goes looking for them. Where are you? He calls out. God also pursues Cain, even after he has murdered his brother Abel. Where are you? He pursues Elijah. Jesus restores the disciples. See, the Bible tells the story of people who run and hide, but also of a God who pursues and a God who seeks. And this dynamic between running and hiding and pursuing and chasing is on a full display here in the story of Jonah. And maybe perhaps best on display here in the story of Jonah. Because this little short story is, I would argue, one of the greatest, if not the greatest short stories ever written. It's a masterful tale. There are no wasted words. And as we explore it over the next five weeks, I hope hope that you fall in love with a story. I hope the story kind of gets in you because it's, it's... beautifully told. It's masterfully written. It's simple enough for a child to enjoy, but it's complex enough to devastate an adult. Now, as we get into the story, let's just look at the first couple verses. Verse one, chapter one begins like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, what does that mean? Well, you got to understand Jonah was a prophet, which means he is someone who received the word of God and then spoke it on behalf of God to other people. In Old Testament times in the nation of Israel, to be a prophet is a very particular and unique vocation. Other people understood what prophets were. Prophets understood who they were and the kind of life they were called to. And so for Jonah, this is likely not the first time that he has received the word of God. Now, what is that phrase, the word of God? Some of us have not been around church for very long, or even those of us who have, maybe sometimes just pretend like we know what that means, but that's kind of Bible talk. So what is the word of God or the word of the Lord? Well, it is the message that comes from God through his prophet to his people. It is sometimes encouraging. It is sometimes a rebuke. Sometimes it rejoices. Sometimes it convicts. Sometimes it illumines or reveals. Sometimes it predicts the future. But always, no matter what emotional level it's hitting on, it is always a word of mercy. Meaning, God always sends his word for the good of those who receive it. Now, who is supposed to receive this word? To whom is Jonah sent? In verse 2, it says... God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
So this is a little history lesson. Nineveh was the major city in the Assyrian Empire. And what you've got to understand at this point is that the Ninevites are not a part of God's people. They are outside, outside the covenant. They are violent, they are unjust, they are cruel enemies of God's people. And if you just think about our own more recent history, this is, in Jonah being sent to Nineveh, it's kind of like a Jewish person being sent to Nazi Germany, or a Tutsi living in Rwanda being sent to the Hutus, or if you're an Arminian, it's like being sent to the Ottomans. Like, for a Hebrew living near Jerusalem, the Ninevites of Assyria are bad news. You do not want to go to them. They are your enemies. And as the tale unfolds, we'll see that Jonah runs away from God, and we'll see that God chases him. Jonah runs away, God chases. This is a story about running and chasing. Now, as we'll see in a bit, um, there, is, there is something to this running. There's a reason why Jonah is running, and he's actually running from God's mercy. We'll say, that, we'll say more about that in a second. But for now, you just need to see that duality, the running and the chasing. And so we're just going to ask two very simple questions this morning. What does it mean to run from God? Like for us, what does it mean to run from God? And then also for us, what does it mean to be chased by God? What does it mean to run from God? What does it mean to be chased by God? Let's start with the running. Okay, after the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, what happens next? It says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Let's start with the motive. Why did Jonah run? Why did he flee? To answer this, we kind of have to spoil the ending of the story of Jonah. We've got to skip all the way to the end, very end of chapter 4. It's not a very long story, so you're flipping over like one page, but... We got to skip to the end. The very end of the story, here's what's happened. Jonah has run away from God. God has chased him. Jonah's been thrown into the ocean. The whale comes along and swallows up Jonah. The whale then spits out Jonah. Jonah gets up. He finally goes to Nineveh. He preaches to Nineveh. Nineveh repents. God has mercy on the Ninevites. And then Jonah's angry. The very end of the story. He is the all time worst prophet. He is also the most successful. Very interesting dichotomy there. The worst prophet was the most successful prophet. Now, why is Jonah angry at the end? He he tips his hand. He tells us at the very end of the story why, in the very beginning, he didn't want to go. And he says, I knew you were a God of mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah is saying, look, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew you. This is who you are, God. I knew you'd have mercy on them. And that's why I didn't want to go. And that is mysterious. And it's, it's kind of, in that mystery, there's, there's kind of some good news for us and some bad news for us. Here it is. It's good news for us initially because it means that the story of Jonah is actually not the primitive tale that we are most inclined to think it to be. The story of Jonah is not this primitive story of a guy who's kind of racist towards Assyrians and thought he could outrun God geographically. Like, no. The story is emotionally and spiritually complex. So it's good news for us because it means that we don't have to dismiss the story of Jonah as this like outdated tale of a guy who doesn't understand how God works, right? No. But therein lies the bad news, or at least the troubling news for us, because it means we can't dismiss it. It actually might have something to do with our more sophisticated lives today. It's not a primitive story. So what does Jonah do? We know why he flees, but but what does he actually do? Well, geography lesson. Nineveh, at the time, was located in what we would now call modern-day Iraq. It's due east, by land, from Jerusalem and the village where Jonah would be living. So if you're going to get to Nineveh from Jonah's hometown, you're going to get kind of a caravan of camels or donkeys. You're going to make this multi-hundred-mile trip over land to Nineveh, and you're going to go east. 
But what does Jonah do? He goes to Tarshish. Where is that? It's in Spain. You got to get there in a boat. It's due west by sea. And so just the humor doesn't come through from the Hebrew into the English, but this is really funny. I mean, this is humor worthy of Trevor Noah or Jim Gaffigan. Like it's God sending you on a mission to New Jersey and instead you get on a plane to Beijing, right? Like that's the dichotomy you should be seeing here. And by the way, I picked New Jersey because I think that's the Nineveh of today, right? Like, I'm just kidding. After the first service, I had someone who was actually from New Jersey text me that they're sending Vinny to come cap my knees, which... It's such a New Jersey thing to say. Anyway. Um, okay, so the geography of this text is not accidental. Not only is there, the, there this east-west thing happening where God calls him east, instead he decides to go, go west. But look, again, I've got to convince you, the book of Jonah is a masterful tale. No wasted words, no accidental words. What is the first word in God's call to Jonah? When the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, God says to him, word one, arise. Jonah's response is, he goes down to Joppa, down to a ship, down into the inner part of the ship. Arise, go up. Jonah's response, go down. There's some geographic wordplay happening here. And what is he trying to do? It says that the text says that he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? I mean, at first blush, our temptation is to read this and think, well, Jonah is just kind of dumb. Like he's just not theologically sophisticated. We know that if there is a God, and I know not everybody here believes in God, but if there is a God, then surely he can go anywhere. He's not limited to like Richmond or Jerusalem. He can be anywhere or go anywhere. But Jonah, primitive idiot that he is, doesn't actually know that. No. Jonah's a prophet. He's dialogued with God before. Have you done that? You have not. If you have, come talk to me. Like, Jonah is not theologically primitive. When he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord, what is he doing? Well, for a Hebrew at this time in history, where is the presence of the Lord primarily located? In the imagination of a Hebrew. It's in the temple. The temple is where the presence of the Lord dwells primarily with his people. So when Jonah flees the presence of the Lord, what is he doing? He's running away from the temple. He's running away from the community of God, the people of God, any kind of accountability And he's running away from all the people who would know that he's a prophet (laughs) and that he's called to speak on behalf of God. He's running away from church. That's what he's doing. Fleeing from the presence of God equals fleeing from the church, from the community of the people of God. Now, listen, at this point, we've got to recognize everybody does this. Everybody runs from God. Now, I'm going to show you how in just a minute, but first, we've just got to acknowledge together, everybody runs from God. A crucial part of self-knowledge, knowing yourself, is knowing the particular subtleties and strategies that you use to run away from God. So if I just ask you right now, what are your strategies for getting away from God? Everyone, if you're going to really know yourself, you need to learn how to answer that question. And it's a hard question. You know, there, a lot of us do these things in different ways. Not everyone does it the same. Some of us run away in a similar way, way that Jonah did. We physically run away from church, away from other Christians. We get as far away from possible as from the Christian lifestyle. We deconstruct church and the way of Jesus as much as possible. We try to run through secularism. We embrace a life that, to the best of our ability, does not include God. And some of us have done this in the past, and I know that others of us are in the middle of doing this right now. And 
you're visiting this Sunday. You might even be regretting it at this point, right? Somebody invited you here. Maybe you came out of your own curiosity, maybe against your better judgment. And you're in the midst of that running right now at this moment. And not everybody is in that camp. Some of us are. Some of us are in a different camp where we do this a little bit less openly. We might have kind of the outward Christian lifestyle thing going on, but secretly we are running from God. We just do it in secret ways because our friend group would be kind of like scandalized if they found out the secret ways that we run from God. And we do this through alcohol and sex and pornography and gossip. We do it in the ways we use the internet. We do it in the ways we talk to each other. We do it in the ways we talk about each other. There are all manner of ways to run from God. Some of us do it publicly. Some of us do it very secretly. And then there are others of us who are even sneakier still where maybe in a way that we're not even conscious of, we actually use religion and we actually use the church as this kind of buffer between us and God. Like, God actually kind of freaks me out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of be a Christian in church. I'm going to get super busy with all kinds of church things. I'm going to use those as a buffer between me and God. So I don't actually have to deal with God and God maybe can't get to me. But that way I don't feel guilty because I'm very involved in all kinds of God-like stuff. And so use your volunteering and your serving and your study and your attendance and your small groups and your book clubs and use these, these religious things, these church things as like an insulated padding of foam between you and God. Church can be, for some people, a great place to hide from God. Now, listen, if you're thinking at this point, like, okay, Dan, I hear you, but actually none of those describe me because Look, you're describing people that are trying to get away from God, and I'm not. Like, I don't, feel, I don't feel bad about any of those things. I don't feel guilty about any of those things. I don't have a troubled conscience. Like, I know you're trying to kind of get after me, preacher man, but like, I don't feel that at all, okay? Did Jonah feel it? He did not. What is Jonah doing at this part of the story? He is asleep. Is he having trouble sleeping? Is his conscience tortured? No, he feels fine. Everything's going according to plan. Everything's going great. You can be running from God and not have a troubled conscience at all. You cannot lose a minute of sleep over the fact that you are running from God. Now, what does God do? Jonah runs. The word, God sends his word to Jonah. Jonah, arise. Go to the city of Nineveh. I've got a mission for you, Jonah. Jonah immediately runs in the other direction. God sees him doing this. And what does God do? He shrugs. He lets Jonah go. God goes and reads Henry Cloud's book on boundaries and realizes that he needs to respect Jonah's space and Jonah's privacy. God goes and finds someone else to do his mission because you wouldn't want to sort of make somebody not live out of their authentic self, right? No. God throws a storm at Jonah. So this is the form of chasing that happens in the story. God is a meddlesome God in the story. In other words, he's a God who gets all up in your business who does not respect your boundaries, who does not respect your privacy, who chases after you and does so in profoundly uncomfortable ways. He's a God who won't leave you alone. C.S. Lewis once wrote when he was in the midst of wrestling through whether or not he could convert to the Christian faith, described uh, that feeling like this. He said, I can't stand God. He is so meddlesome. A.W. Tozer, uh, Tozer called God the hound of heaven meaning the one who chases and who pursues, who won't give up the scent, who won't let you go. So God throws a storm at Jonah and at all the other sailors who are on the boat, right? These poor guys are just kind of caught in the crossfire here. So God throws a storm. And we'll get metaphorical in a minute, but let's be literal for just a hot second. Have you ever actually been in a storm at sea? 
in a sailboat? I have. It is very scary. So we kind of live this life these days where we are mostly insulated from bad weather. Like when stuff happens in the natural world, we can mitigate against it for the most part. It takes a hur- it takes something catastrophic like a hurricane or tornado to actually make us feel the weather, right? But if you're out on the sea and you're in a sailboat and a storm rolls in and there's lightning cracking so loud over your head that it hurts your eardrums and the ship is rocking back and forth from side to side and if you're anything like me at that particular time, you're not a good sailor, <laughs> it is very scary. And you can't help but think to yourself, especially if you're out of sight of land, like, all right, this is it. This is how I die. I die on this sailboat. Thought I was going on vacation. Turns out this is how I die, right? Now, God throws a storm at Jonah. What's happening here? This text is absolutely destroying the therapeutic God of our age. The text absolutely destroys the therapeutic God of our age. This is describing a God who will make you miserable, In order to secure your eternal joy, a God who will not only allow you to get hurt, but a God who will hurt you and to hurt the people near you in order to secure your eternal joy. The hurt comes, you got to understand, from a place of love and mercy. God will hurt you kind of the way a doctor will hurt you, right? You ever had an uncomfortable visit to the doctor where he or she needed to perform an operation or a procedure that was uncomfortable, maybe even painful, maybe you had surgery? Maybe, you, maybe you're still recovering from surgery right now and you still feel the pain of the wound that the doctor gave you, right? But was that malicious? Of course not. It was actually a mercy. It just hurts. Now, if you're struggling to deal with this, because I think we all, just by virtue of the fact that we live at this time in history and we live in our culture, tend to have a primarily therapeutic view of God, just imagine this. Imagine that you're sleeping in your bed, your home. It's about three o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black out. And all of a sudden, an alarm goes off. Turns out it's the carbon monoxide detector in your house. Carbon monoxide is invisible, odorless gas, but it is lethal. It will kill you. And so when the carbon monoxide alarm goes off, what do you have to do? You've got to vacate the premise, right? You've got to go outside. Now, what if you're the only person in your household that wakes up? What if everybody else just kind of keeps sleeping? Uh, maybe it's a roommate or a spouse. Or maybe you have kids in the house. What would you do to get them out of bed and get them outside. You do anything, right? But what if they didn't want to? What if they wanted to stay in bed? What if they wanted to rest? What if they said, I'll deal with this later, right? You would be urgent. You would press them. You would, you know, kind of, you would start, probably raise your voice. You'd probably start yelling, right? What if they still resisted? What if they fought back? What would you do to get them out of the home? You'd do anything if you love them, right? Now, if you just decide in that moment, you know what? I respect your need for rest. Do you love them? You do not, right? You would do anything to drag them out. In the same way, God will do anything. God will do anything to chase you down. And he does so from a place of love and mercy. Look, from God's perspective, pain is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Death isn't even the worst thing that can happen to you. Eternal separation from him. Eternal joylessness is the worst thing that can happen to you from God's perspective. And so in this life, God will chase you down and throw all kinds of storms your way, at you, all, all kinds of storms your way. And he does so because he loves you. He does so as an act of mercy. The storm is a storm of mercy. It is God's violent love. It's God's severe love, God's severe mercy. The storm is God tracking you down to save you from being hit by the train. Look, if you don't believe in a God who loves you enough to throw a storm at you, 
then you kind of only believe in a God who sort of kind of likes you, but mostly just sort of needs to be liked by you, right? It's, it's God as insecure. God as needing to be liked by you to be okay. It's wonderfully horrible, terrible, awesome news that God is not that insecure. He just doesn't need to be liked by you. He does love you fiercely. And so he will throw storms at you, even if you don't like them, because he loves you and he wants to rescue you. The storm is a storm of mercy. It is actually for Jonah's good. It's for the sailor's good too. Just think for a moment about the storms in your life. Now, everybody in the room has either, either recently been in a storm or you're in a storm right now. Or, you're not to be too ominous, but you're probably going to be in a storm sometime soon. And either the storm is for you, it is a storm that God has hurled at you because you are running from him, or, listen, it's a storm for somebody else, and you're proximate, you're nearby. The sailors in this story didn't have a storm thrown at them because of their running. They were just nearby. Now, they're implicated and they're involved in the storm, and it actually ends up being for their good as well. But sometimes the storms that we experience are because of who's around us, because of their flight from God. Now, how do you respond to all of this? So all of this is very disconcerting. It is for me. I assume it is for you too. How do you respond to storms? Why would you stop running from the kind of God who throws storms at you anyway? And if you've been running from God, how do you actually go about stopping? How do you stop running? If you have a moment, if you could turn to the cover art on the front page of the liturgy that you received when you walked in, I'd like to point out something there. What you'll see there is, a, is an artistic depiction of a part of the story of Jonah. You'll see the ship, you'll see it under a, st- a sky, you'll see the waves of the ocean, you'll see the whale beneath the waves. And you'll see that the whole scene takes, pe- takes place within a heart within the heart of God, which is a heart of mercy. The whole story plays out within God's mercy. And the good news of the gospel is that the same is true for you and I. Our whole story plays out within the heart of God's mercy, including the storms. The story of God's mercy pursuing us and chasing us. This is one of the best possible ways to understand Jesus, the incarnation of God, the incarnation of the second person of the Holy Trinity into human flesh. God come to us to become like us, to live amongst us and suffer amongst us and to die for us. This is God's pursuing love, God's mercy chasing us down. And Jesus not only pursues us, but actually throws himself into the storm for us. If you've ever looked at the Christian symbol of the cross and thought to yourself, that's strange. This is actually a horrific symbol of torture, but followers of Jesus seem to treat this as a good thing, as a positive thing. Isn't that odd? Yes, it is very odd, but we do so because it is a sign of God's mercy. On the cross, God himself throws himself into the storm to save us from the storm. So how do you stop running? Well, The answer is actually found in a wonderful place. It's actually found in the words that come from the lips of pagan sailors right here in the story. How does the word of God come to Jonah in the very beginning of the story? Arise, right? When they're in the middle of the storm and the pagan sailors are panicking and they go down into the hold of the ship 
They find Jonah sleeping there. It's the first thing the captain of the ship says to Jonah. Arise. It's the same word. You think that's a coincidence? It is not. Do you think God can speak to you through unbelievers? Of course he can. Arise. Call on your God. It's a call to pray, to confess, to repent, to turn around. That's what repent means anyway, right? Turning around. There's an old saying that says, no matter how many steps you take away from God, you're never more than one step away from returning to him. And that is profoundly true, and we see it right here. Jonah, at this point in the story, has fled probably hundreds of miles from where God called him to go. And yet, what is required of him? Arise, call on your God, turn around. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. One of the great themes of Lent is responding to the mercy of God through repentance, which is how you stop running. You stop running by falling to your knees and telling the truth, confessing that you have been running from God and confessing the particular unique way that you have done that whether it's been openly through public deconstruction and rebuke of the church and God embracing of secularism, right? Or whether it's secret and private in hidden sins that you'd be terrified for anybody in this room to know about. Or whether it's been using the church, maybe even using Redeemer, as an insulated foam padding buffer between you and God so that he can't get to you. No matter what strategy you've used to run from God, turning around and repenting is dropping to your knees and confessing. These are the ways, God, that I have run from you. I want to turn around and I want to come back to you. What if today you stopped running? You know, when you play hide and go seek with little kids, how does it go when you actually do find them and discover them? They pop out of the closet, they crawl up from under the bed, they explode from the mountain of pillows under which they have buried themselves, and they say something like, Here I am. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. What if today was the day that you said, Here I am? You stop running, and you allow God's mercy to catch up to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, here we are. We don't want to run anymore. Lord, we confess to you the unique and particular and personal ways that we have fled from your presence. We want to stop running. We want to allow your mercy to catch up to us. Allow your mercy to find us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come to us. You've given yourself on the cross in mercy to find us and to bring us home. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.